Hi there, my name is Deacon Brian, and I am the producer of the Whistling Jesus podcast. In this conversation, we talk about the very real issues of the COVID-19 pandemic and racism in the Twin Cities and beyond. We recognize that not all of our listeners are in a place to hear this conversation. While we hope you take the time to listen with open ears and an open heart, we also encourage you to do what is best for you at this time. All of us at Shepherd of the Hills are here for you and are praying for you. If you need spiritual care during this time, please feel free to reach out to our pastoral staff by going to our website, soth, S-O-T-H, church.com. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hi, my name is Jason Gadd. I'm the current mayor of the city of Hopkins, Minnesota, and you're listening to the Whistling Jesus podcast. Hi, my name is Pastor Scott Searle. I'm the senior pastor at Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran Church in Edina, Minnesota, and you're listening to the Whistling Jesus podcast. Today, we are glad to be in conversation with Jason Gadd, the current mayor of Hopkins, Minnesota. Jason, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here, Pastor Scott, and looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. Thanks for joining us this morning. Why don't we just start with, um, how, could you tell us a little bit about your background, where you're originally from, and a little bit about your family and who you are? Well, it's always a great place to start. Uh, helps you get to understand a little bit better. I actually grew up in central South Dakota on a small cattle ranch there and grew up, grew up with my uh, grandma living next door in the house next to us. And so it was a great uh, time growing up there with all my cousins. And I was ended up being, I guess, what I call the black sheep because I moved away from the farm. All my cousins still do operate the farm, but moved off and got into computer technology. And so that's actually what brought me here to Minnesota after college. And from there, uh, through a variety of different avenues, especially through the uh, Minnesota JCs or Junior Chamber International, is really where I met. Um, my wonderful wife, Laura, we're now in getting close to our 10th year anniversary. I've lived here in Hopkins since 96. And that's one of the reasons I really moved to Hopkins was it reminded me of my small town, Highmore, back in South Dakota. What, what were some of the things about Hopkins that were attractive that sort of reminded you of home? When I first moved here to the Twin Cities, I moved to Bloomington because I was the only suburb I'd ever heard of. But then it was basically the first month I was here, I got connected with some friends in Hopkins and got to see Hopkins Main Street and, you know, with a local grocery store. And it just had that feel where you could walk down the street and just meet your neighbors and talk to your neighbors and other suburbs just didn't have that feeling. Hopkins has changed, I would guess, quite a bit from uh, the late nineties or mid nineties to now, how have you sort of seen that sort of transition take place? It's, it has been a transition, um, but it's always an evolution is what I call it. And, you know, from my involvement from just being a community volunteer to begin with and seeing events and activities grow, uh, from the raspberry festival to main street days, to some of the events that I helped create, like Heritage Celebration, which has evolved now as a part of Raspberry Festival. The police department's taken that over. I've seen the positive changes. So the business and activity continue to grow. And yet 
the feeling of Hawkins to me has remained the same. That feeling that it is a hometown that people have passion and want to live here. And to me, that hasn't changed. Uh, you've been living in Hopkins for quite a while. What what were some of the things that attracted you to community service and public service? It has been uh, a life's journey. Um, you know, it's an interesting question because as I look back, I think part of serving the community has always been a part of what I grew up with. Um, I think a lot of that goes back to, and it's kind of fitting we're doing this right after Father's Day. It was what my father had taught me growing up and you know, kind of the philosophy of working on the ranch is, you know, you worked with all your neighbors all the time. And so our neighbors would come over and help us at the ranch. We'd go help them. And then everybody would get together to support the community because it was such a small town. And that kind of evolved um, in my life as I grew in, even in college when I was part of uh, Air Force. Um, I led and was a part of a number of community volunteer groups that went out in the community and helped with like adaptive aquatics to helping um, mm. individuals swim and those type of things to when I got here to Hopkins, that's really where then the JCs, which are now called JCI really blossomed my community involvement. And, and for those who don't know about that, that's a leadership development organization through community volunteerism. And so that's really what got me thrust into full force community activism. And that evolved into working so closely with the city. And so by the time I was out of the JCs looking for something else, that's where interest in serving on the parks board with the city and doing something to really maintain the city going forward. Because I served as Minnesota president for the JCs. Mm. And this is really the key of what got me on wanting to serve on city council was I traveled the state and visited in front of a variety of different city councils, introducing the JCs, the local JCs to them. And I got to see a lot of what I call dysfunctional city councils and mm. cities. And you could sure. see those that openly fought in, in council chambers and, and like that and you drive through the cities, you could see they weren't progressing. They weren't moving forward. Mm -hmm. Hopkins was moving forward. And so to me, it was like, you know, maybe that's what I want to be a part of to ensure Hopkins continues being moving forward and maintaining that high quality of life. So how long have you been participating at sort of the city government levels? It must be about 10 years or so now. Correct. Right? Um, yeah. Yep. I started on the parks board in um, 2000 and then was elected first on the council and served seven years on council and then moved into the mayor role. I guess it's been just over a year now. What, what's been some of the most exciting parts about being part of watching and participating in city government? And what's been some of the more challenging things that you've encountered? One of the highlights that I've, and I've, I've shared this with some other people as well, has been when I first got on to parks board, we had this little, and actually it was one of my parks, I was in charge of was um, a little place called Cottageville Park. And it was a little <laughs> hidden park. Yeah. I had no idea that, that it even existed because it was in the middle of a block. My time on that is where we started that vision of working with the watershed district and opening up the park to the to Blake Road and um, creating that whole vision to see Cottageville Park become the signature amenity that it is right now um, was one of the I, right now, one of the biggest joys I've had 
know, being a part of the community, being able to see that evolution from something that was a nuisance to something that people would aspire to. A uh, couple of the things that unexpected serving on council that um, I never thought I would ever be involved with is I know so much more about sewer systems that I ever <laughs> want to. <laughs> it's those type of things that you don't even think about that, but that's the lifeblood of the city is that infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not expand that metaphor too far. <laughs> and then the other challenging has just been, especially, you know, the last few months where we've gotten not only just, you know, with economic impact and issues that we were starting to work with and um, fine tune, but then we got hit with something that I never dreamt I would ever, you know, it wasn't on any perspective I saw as far as here's when you're mayor, here's the things you're going to deal with. A global pandemic was not one of them. And having to call, you know, a city emergency for something like that was never even imagined. So on top of that, with the uh, social unrest right now with the George Floyd killing and how has that impacted our community and trying to work through that as well as the global pandemic at the same time. That's so that's been very challenging. Yeah. That, that was sort of one of my next questions about how I'm, we could pull those apart too. I mean, in right. some ways, and I'm not sure if you can <laughs> right now, uh, um, History may help us do that a little bit, but um, either either one, I'd be curious to sort of know how, uh, what sort of leadership skills that you've drawn upon uh, to sort of help navigate that situation. Um, and then maybe even some of the specifics of what is mayor are you hearing, both in terms of the economic crisis of COVID, um, and then maybe even some of the uh, policing related issues surrounding the death of George Floyd. Taking a look at how, and I'll start with, you know, with the COVID crisis, one of the skills that I drew upon as a leader, one of the best qualities that you can have is to be a listener. You know, I drew upon the expertise of our city staff and uh, our financial director and because that's their world. That's what they're experts at. And so I've been very impressed with the staff as far as what they've come up with. It's not something, as I started, that we had ever planned for a global pandemic. But yet, a lot of the things that we've been doing the last few years, as far as upgrading our systems and moving all of our records from physical records to scanning them so they're all electronic records and upgrading our technology. Uh, some people might have thought, looking at that over the years, is like, why are we you know, spending money on this kind of stuff? as we moved into the pandemic where everybody's working from home and as a city, we actually had everybody working from home as well. That transition was fairly smooth. And so we didn't have a lot of major expenses to make that transition. And so that's kind of is what we had built on. We have been very proactive on kind of setting the foundation for different areas, which, you know, kind of gets into the next area with the George Floyd death and, the focus and spotlight on policing and community policing and how do we interact with, you know, the racial communities within Hopkins and creating that racial equity. Um, one of the things that hit home to me as I was talking with a lot of other mayors around the twin cities is just how Hopkins, we had such a strong foundation in place 
And because we've been working on racial equity here in Hopkins uh, for a number of years, um, including the establishment of the Hopkins Race and Equity Initiative, um, which is a, you know, brought from the community, um, from the faith community, uh, which is so important to the school district and then the city of Hopkins and our police department as the core partners of that initiative um, back in 2016 to really start those hard discussions on race equity and white privilege. And a lot of that enabled us once when this social unrest hit with George Floyd's death and you've seen riots and protests in a lot of the surrounding cities. Um, we were, our police were understanding of the different communities of color here in town and vice versa, the community colors. Um, appreciated our police department. So there was not that tension that you saw in some of these other cities, which has really enabled us to kind of get through it, even though right now our police department is having a lot of stress and we put on that because the the spotlight is on them from mainly a lot of people from outside the community. Have there been racial tensions in Hopkins uh, since you've been invested in the sort of the city side of it? And, you know, I will admit that sort of from the faith perspective, um, we haven't done a particularly good job of interacting with our friends of color in the Hopkins community. And from a faith point of view, one of the things that I'm just sort of embarrassed about is that I know some of the faith leaders of color in Hopkins, like Pastor Satis, who is going to help lead a prayer vigil on Friday night in cooperation, actually with the Minnetonka uh, Police Chapman's group. But we haven't done a very good job uh, as a faith community. So I'm wondering how that looks from the city's perspective in terms of how the city is engaged with uh, different communities of color and how you see either our more white communities and our more uh, uh, communities of color either interacting or not interacting and ways that you might see us kind of moving in a better direction. Mm -hmm. And maybe I've even not characterized that right. So, No, I think... It brings up a very interesting perspective um, and something that I personally have also been dealing with um, over the last month um, as well. You know, I've, I've been involved with kind of the core of the racial equity work here in Hopkins uh, since I've been on council. Uh, I've been through a number of uh, what we call GARE training. It's governmental affairs, race equity working with uh, leaders from around the state and understanding the needs and the racial barriers uh, from the city perspective on how and what we can do. Uh, But even working through that, there were some aspects that I didn't even see within myself until just recently. And I I can share some of those in a little bit. Uh, But as far as you mentioned the faith community and not reaching out enough in interacting with the communities of color. I think we're all um, guilty of that. Um, And part of that is part, you know, part of our internal bias that we have, you know, I see a lot of groups using this opportunity now to really kind of refresh their own mindset, if you want to call it that, and being able to reach out. To me, I think the way forward is a combination and a partnership, uh, some of what we already have, which is because the faith community can't do it all by themselves. The city, we can't do it by ourselves. 
you know, the schools can't do it by themselves, but it's because we all reach different people at different times and not everybody goes to a faith community. Not everybody gets involved in the city, that kind of thing. But that's where that partnership, I think, is going to be the key to what we can do here in Hopkins to continue to encourage everyone to, to ask questions. And, you know, and that includes encouraging our communities of color to reach out and ask questions of, and especially if they see something that they feel intimidated by or anything like that, that's where we need to open our eyes. Mm. I appreciate all of that so much. And I, I would put ourselves as a faith community in that sort of same place. You know, I've had conversations with my mom who taught in the Minneapolis public schools uh, from 1964, 63, 64 through 70 when they were doing integrated busing. And I took my mom down to the George Floyd Memorial. And um, as we were walking away, she said, I'm not sure what's changed since I was teaching in 1965. And, um, you know, we both sort of recognized uh, how our own internal biases unreflected uh, have very much come to the fore. And so I'm wondering how that has been for you personally as well as you've sort of thought about that. And I, and I know that's hard. I mean, this is a hard conversation to have. It's been a very difficult re- self-reflection um, because, to be honest, and, you know, I'll share this out there. When, um, for example, um, you know, some of the, you know, Charlottesville and some of these others that have come up in the past and, you know, you hear, and I hear Black Lives Matter back then, I was, to be honest, on the line of, well, I agree, but all lives matter. Shouldn't we be focusing on all lives and what, what that, you know, that everybody is, is the same. Um, it is only until uh, since George Floyd and some of the discussions I've had and some of the um, things I've witnessed that I've had that deep reflection within myself. And now I completely understand that difference. And it's a couple of one things that I'll share with that I, that helped show me what all lives matter. That statement means to black lives matter is um, if you're at the funeral of your child and you're up there talking about how special your child is, and then the next person gets up and says, well, all children are special. You know, how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing. You know, we can't have all lives matter until we have black lives matter, you know, and, and recognize that. And that was kind of the first evolution within myself over this last month. And then the other was I went back and read some information from some of the original Hopkins race and equity um, documents that we had and some of the white privilege. Mm. And one of the statements that um, talked about implicit bias, you mentioned that I ran across that I realized I still do within myself. And that is when I interact with a person of color or even whether it's just saying hello to them or, you know, smiling at them in my brain, I click that 
oh, look, I did something good for a person of color. That signal wasn't into my brain if I was doing it for yourself or for, you know, mm. someone that looks like my, me. It's mm. like, so why is that? that? That's part of that implicit bias that now I'm congratulating myself for how I interacted with somebody who looks different. Mm. And until we can get to the point where that isn't in, my, in the brain, that's the journey we're on. That's we got to the point we got to get to. I really appreciate that, Jason, and that level of vulnerability. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that I find concerning as a pastor is that, um, especially in our in the public sphere as leaders, um, these days it's rare to sort of offer that level of vulnerability, which I think gets in the way of our uh, ability to empathize. Um, and so that these kind of conversations to me publicly are really important. And, um, I really appreciate that. I think my perspective is that the more we sort of allow ourselves that vulnerability, both, uh, personally and interpersonally and publicly, it increases our ability to generate empathy for each other. And so I, I find that to be just a really important part of leadership right now. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure there's more that we could talk about, but, um, and I'm sure that there's more that we will talk about as community leaders. <laughs> yes. I hope so. I think now is the time that we really need to take action and not just have a few days or weeks of, okay, this is wrong. What do we do? And then nothing comes out of it. Have we made changes within Hopkins um, over the last few years? Yes, we have. Are we there yet? Absolutely not. And that's where why it's important to continue these discussions, as you say, and continue the self-evaluations and the self-reflections because each one of us is in a different spot in this journey right now. And so it's going to take some time. As I mentioned, like for myself, I was in a different spot four years ago as I am now. Well, I know there are people that are, you know, back at that spot now. So it's going to take some time. And that's where I appreciate the opportunity to, Kind of like I said, with the core, especially with what we have here in Hopkins with the Hopkins Race and Equity Initiative and that group, um, and the opportunities that they can bring different people together. Uh, this past Friday, I was at a special event at the Hopkins Center for the Arts with Lee, um, Lee Hutton, um, that was put on and sharing his experiences. And one of the things that drove home to me that his grandpa, um, because he was he's out of Houston, out of Texas, lived just down the street from where the final proclamation was made in Texas of ending slavery. And that proclamation was made just 30 years before his grandpa was born. So his grandpa knew people who were slave. I mean, it's put in that perspective. It's not that long ago. And so that's why we need to keep that moving forward so we can make changes. Maybe just turning topics just a little yeah. bit. Um, I, I I know in the last few years, just to talk maybe a little bit about housing and the Hopkins um, has become, you know, in the 10 years that I've been there, it seems like Hopkins has become like this hot place to live. And I think it has a little to do with the light rail. It has a little to do with the diversity of Hopkins. It has to do with the downtown and the walkability uh, and its connection to downtown Minneapolis. And um, it's just positioned in such an amazing location right now, right? Um, and so we've seen buildings like the Moline and the Gallery Flats and uh, Oxford Village and now Vista 44. 
Um, and uh, now some redevelopment on Blake and the potential cold storage site. I wonder sort of what's your perspective on how that's all happening in Hopkins related to housing and, and the speed in which this seems to be kind of taking place. So it's interesting you mentioned the speed of the development because um, it actually has been moving very slowly. <laughs> but the perspective is, I can see that because a lot of them have come to fruition just within the last few years. But I think a lot of that has to do with our vision that we have for Hopkins. And that is not just my vision or the current council's vision. This was something that was created multiple councils ago. Um, as far as really what the vision for Hopkins and especially housing would be. And right now, if you take a look at our comprehensive plan for Hopkins, we've got four uh, goals within just our housing vision. Uh, the first one of those is really to grow the supply of housing in Hopkins. Um, a lot of that is because of the light rail coming through, which was very intentional by councils. And I've been a part of that for the last, since I've been on council, so over 10 years, but light rail started, you know, 30 years ago, actually. <laughs> um, but to make sure that it came through Hopkins to give us that opportunity. But what that does is allows us to um, grow that supply because the population is going to continue to grow and we need some place for you know every person to live. Part of that is also then the second goal is really to maintain an inventory of housing that is also affordable uh, for low income and moderate income. And I think you've seen our focus on that has really um, come fruition with like Oxford Flats or Oxford Village and Vista 44, trying to incorporate ways of how we can ensure that we maintain that. Um, now, we also have a number of um, naturally occurring affordable housing in Hopkins, and that's where we see a lot of that. As we continue to develop Hopkins, you know, that has the potential of going away and gentrifying and as the property values increase. And so that's why our focus has been on really working with developers like this uh, beacon with Vista 44, not only just building affordable, but then managing and maintaining. Because what that does is create that long-term affordability, but then we also need housing for all types of stages. Um, and that's kind of our third goal, which is, creating neighborhoods that have that high quality choice of housing that meets all types of life stages. And so that's where looking at creating neighborhoods. And so for example, like on Excelsior and Blake in that area, that station, as we're looking at that area, that all of the rental in that area around that station area within a two mile radius is 100% affordable. And so there is no market rate or no, you know, so that's, you know, so we want to make sure there's a balance there. And then the final is with our existing housing stock and our homes, we need to do what we can to maintain that character and quality of those homes. And that's where we try to come up with a variety of different grants from Hennepin County and those type of things to for homeowners to update their houses and maintain that stock there as well. This is sort of a kind of a getting back to some uh, to close with just some personal questions, too, about um, one of the things that we're really interested in. And I, I hope we've um, at least been in the community enough to be recognized is we're really interested in community um, and making sure that we're good partners in our community for all sorts of different uh, constituents. And I'm wondering 
how do you define community and what makes for a good community for you? And where have you felt that community? And what I been thinking about that uh, recently a lot. Um, but, you know, my definition of community is really people who live together, who shop together, who play together, um, and who know each other. Um, and to me, that's what builds a community. Um, and that's, as I mentioned earlier, what I drew me to Hopkins initially was that, you know, you can walk down the street and see your neighbors and have that chat. It also means that, you know, people in times of need come together and help each other out. And for me, that's really been one of the key things of the creativity of neighbors and of our local businesses to reach out to inspire each other by just putting messages on sidewalks like that to putting out uh, creative ways of how to deliver goods and services, you know, from some of our local businesses that have been so creative that they're now incorporating that into their ongoing business model. To me, that's really what makes the community. And I've seen our residents come out to help our local businesses that are struggling. How about maybe one sort of last question is um, if you could do anything in our community or for our, for our, for the Hopkins community that you knew wouldn't fail, uh, what would you do and what impact would it have? Wow. Um, (laughs) I think, Right now, in mainly because it's, I don't know if it's on the forefront in my mind or whatever, but it would be being able to bring everyone together. Um, and that is all of our different neighborhoods, all of our different communities, uh, communities of faith, communities of color, and be able to know that we are all one in that you know, that we can get along, we can, you know, and so that when we have an event, whether it be at the Center for the Arts or in Cottageville Park, that are on city council, on our boards, commissions, that it's representative of everybody that we have here in town. You know, if I could do anything and just say, we're going to get do that and have that accomplished this year, then yes, that would be the one. Well, thank you so very much for taking your time to be with us. I yes. really appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability and uh, the way all of the people in Hopkins are leading right now. I'm, I'm appreciative. So we're grateful for you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me out here. And I love that your your way of bringing the different voices of the leaders together. And I think there's a tremendous, this, could, this podcast could go on for years because of the number of leaders <laughs> we've got here in town. So. I hope so. And if there's anybody that you know that we should talk to, please let us know because we would love to. Yeah. So sounds great. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Whistling Jesus podcast. A very special thank you to Hopkins City Mayor Jason Gadd. Please tune in next time as Pastor Scott sits down with the Dinah Public School Superintendent John Schultz. Peace. The Whistling Jesus podcast is hosted and produced by Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran Church in Edina, Minnesota, and is made possible through a partnership with the Riverside Innovation Hub at Augsburg University in downtown Minneapolis.